Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ukraine's president is about to ask Congress directly for something the U.S. has not yet been willing to give him. The lead starts right now. Kyiv now in the middle of a mandatory curfew as Russia's unrelenting siege targets more innocent civilians and a city official in Mariupol says the Russian military is taking hostages inside a hospital. Then CNN visits a Ukrainian village where locals are using any supplies they can find to prepare to resist Russian troops. That includes a 71-year-old grandmother who says if it comes down to it, she'll strangle Putin with her bare hands. Plus, we now know what happened to that brave Russian woman who protested the invasion of Ukraine by sneaking onto a Russian state TV broadcast. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our world lead in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, now under a mandatory curfew as Russian forces step up their bombardment of civilian areas around the city. This is what is left of a residential apartment building in western Kyiv. The city's mayor says at least four innocent people were killed there after Russian shelling earlier today. A number of other buildings and residential areas were also hit this morning by the Russians to the east and also to the north of Kyiv. Developing right now a hostage situation at a hospital in the southeastern town of Mariupol, where the city's deputy mayor tells CNN that Russian forces have seized control of the building and are refusing to let anyone leave. The Russian army use uh, doctors and patients as a hostages in this building. So we do not have any access to them. And uh, of course, it's uh, war crime. New satellite images show the widespread destruction across Mariupol. The city's endured weeks of brutal Russian attacks. An estimated 2,500 Ukrainians have been killed just in that city. Another sobering statistic from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He said today 97 Ukrainian children are known to have been killed since Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine began 20 days ago. 97. In the last few days, last few hours rather, we've also heard of two journalists killed, apparently by Russian fire. That includes Fox News photojournalist Pierre Zakshevsky. We're going to have more on that horrible loss later in the show. The constant bombings and airstrikes did not stop a diplomatic show of force today. The prime ministers of Poland, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic arrived in Kyiv a short time ago. Three key NATO allies standing with war-torn Ukraine by standing in war-torn Ukraine. The White House also announced this afternoon President Biden will travel to Europe next week for a series of meetings with key allies, including a NATO summit in Brussels. CNN's Sam Kiley starts off our coverage today from the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. And Sam, the, the curfew is now in place. What is the latest on the, on the fighting in the outskirts of Kyiv? Well, you caught me just looking over my shoulder, I think, when we uh, came up live there, Jake. That's because I can hear the sound of jets in the air above. I don't know if they're Ukrainian or Russian jets. We have heard the distant rumble of either bombing or shelling uh, in, uh, we're not exactly sure what direction it is because the sounds uh, bounce around this city, but, but there does appear to have been a very significant increase in the level of violence on the outskirts 
of the city. And we saw that, of course, uh, at the start of the day with uh, what appears to have been an airstrike on a residential block, 16-storey residential block in one location here. Uh, four people killed there. Another, another of other, as you were saying in the introduction there, a number of residential blocks around the city uh, having been hit. We're not sure, and we haven't got any clarity coming from the government here over the exact nature or reason for this curfew. But even our special passes as journalists that allow us to move around after curfew uh, have been suspended for this period, uh, prompting the assumption, I think, that they have intelligence that perhaps the Russians are likely to step up their much vaunted plans to try to come in and attack, particularly from the north and the east of the city. And the concerns there is, is the extent to which uh, the Russians will use their armour hidden or intermingled with the civilian population, making it very, very difficult as they get into the more urban areas for the Ukrainians to fight back, other than as infantry with those very effective, I have to say, tank-killing weapons, Jake. And Sam, ahead of his address to the U.S. Congress tomorrow, Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke with uh, Canada's parliament today. What did he have to say? What did he ask for? Well, he asked for what he's asked for in the Knesset, in the Houses of Parliament, what he's certain to ask for when he speaks in the United, to the United States, which is he wants to see a no-fly zone. He wants the skies over this country cleared of Russian aircraft so that uh, the air superiority, which is not, or dominance, I should say, it's not yet at the stage, I think, of air superiority, but that the Russians find it very difficult to fly their aircraft uh, in this country. He's been... Uh, flatly rejected with great sympathy, sympathy for that by the by the British. He's already been told that's a non-starter by the United States, Canada, all the NATO countries are aware that it could provoke a third world war. What they are likely to do, though, and it was already happening, Jake, is increase the supply of anti-aircraft weapons, increase the supply of uh, tank-killing, armor-killing weapons, particularly the man-portable weapons. But I think very importantly, if the skies can't be closed by aircraft in a no-fly zone imposed by NATO, the hope for the Ukrainians might be that they at least could get enough air defensive weapons to make it very dangerous for the Russians to fly over their landscape. But he is likely to maintain uh, the pressure on the United States, just as he did in Canada today, and he is doing this relentlessly uh, in a frantic round of uh, communications around the world, uh, trying to elicit support for this no-fly zone. Jake? Sam Kiley, live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please be safe. In parts of central Ukraine where Russian forces have not yet advanced, residents have spent the last few weeks preparing for the eventual attack in every way they can, from making Molotov cocktails to selling camouflage netting to picking up shifts to man the guard posts. CNN's Ivan Watson reports now from outside Venetia, Ukraine. Dawn breaks over the city of Venetia with an air raid siren. The ground war has yet to reach this city in central Ukraine, but locals aren't taking any chances. This is the entrance to a village on the outskirts of the city, a checkpoint protected by volunteers, an ex-cop, a fireman, and an electrician. Look at how this village is protecting itself. Homemade tank traps, which the locals call hedgehogs. They've sewn netting and put up sandbags. And around the wall here of this checkpoint, They've got boxes of Molotov cocktails ready. This is all locally made. These are improvised defenses. And this is just one Ukrainian village. Just down the road, I meet Nina Chitalyuk, who seems like a sweet 71-year-old grandmother. Uh, by the way, 
Mina says that if she saw Vladimir Putin, she would strangle him with her own hands right now. I'm ready, she says. If by God the Russians come here, I'll shoot them all and my hands won't even shake. I'll throw grenades at them. There is seething anger here at Moscow's invasion. And at the same time, examples of tremendous generosity. Stacked inside a garage, humanitarian assistance trucked in from Europe. Personal donations of clothes and food for the struggling people of Ukraine. Aid that will then be shipped off to frontline cities. I want to say thank you for the rest of the world. For the world. Uh, I want to say that we need help. We need and we will need help. Is Vinitsa ready if the Russian military yeah. comes to this city? Yeah. Uh, and other cities um, give us uh, a time. We have two weeks to make good defense. Today we're ready. But we don't want this. The war effort extends to Vasily Solsky and his farm where workers labor listening to news of the war. Vasily donates free food to self-defense forces. Vasily Dmitrovich says he's doing his part to help with the war effort. He says he's planting more crops and he's going to try to grow more food to feed Ukrainians who may be in need in the weeks and months ahead. One of Vladimir Putin's stated objectives for his war on Ukraine was to demilitarize the country. Instead, he has mobilized farmers, grandmothers, and electricians to form a grassroots resistance against the Russian invasion. And Jake, just some added context. That 71-year-old grandmother is one of two separate grandmothers that we've heard from in the last two days here who unprompted have repeated the same line, I would strangle Putin with my own hands. It's just a sense of the level of anger and hatred now that ordinary Ukrainians have for the Russian president, anger that is reflected in a billboard I saw here in town that said in Russian, Russian occupier, go F yourself. Jake? Ivan, when you speak to these Ukrainians who, who could still try to evacuate, what do they tell you about why they haven't yet opted to try to flee, why they're choosing to stay? When I ask people around the city, are you going to leave? They look at me not even comprehending the question. That's the level of commitment to staying here. Uh, some men saying, OK, I'll send my, my wife and children away. We have that plan if that day comes, but I'm not going anywhere. As for the elderly generation, they say, this is our land. They just repeat this over and over and over again. This is our land. The Russians came here. They came into our country. We are going to stay here. This is our home. Uh, and that is this kind of wall of, I don't know, public opinion that Russia will collide against even if it manages some kind of a military defeat uh, in the time ahead. Ivan Watson in central Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss, Maxime Borodin. He's part of Mariupol's city council. He's now in western Ukraine. Maxime, I want to get to what's happening in your, in your home city in a moment. But first, I want to ask, how are you doing? How, how are your family and friends? 
I'm doing okay in uh, it's uh, depend dependent uh, in Mariupol people are living in hell and situation in Mariupol are catastrophic uh, Putin's men are uh, get all the uh, Mariupol citizens like hostages and when we uh, tell about uh, Russian military uh, near Mariupol it's not about military men it's about terrorists because they uh, understand that they can get Mariupol with uh, their troops, so they use artillery, heavy artillery and use uh, explosive bombing to uh, totally destroy the city. In the uh, last five days, they uh, don't stop uh, bombing uh, in a minute. They bombing and shelling all the time, and this, uh, our city is totally destroyed, totally. It must have been difficult to decide to pack up your family and leave home, but at the same time, obviously, you want to protect them. Uh, tell us about that decision and that journey. It's, uh, it was a very hard decision uh, because I have a problem with health uh, after surgery. So when it starts, I take my family and we think it uh, uh, not be a real war. I think it's uh, like we stay near, near the Mariupol, but uh, our, our situation is changes, and uh, now we move uh, further for, for the West when I can get uh, med- medical help. But uh, we all always on connect with uh, our, our friends uh, and families in Mariupol. And for today, uh, the main problem is we don't have closed uh, uh, closed sky because uh, Russians. Uh, use uh, the situation when we don't have uh, anti-missile and anti-plane uh, systems and they totally destroy our city. Uh, today some of uh, people can uh, fled away uh, from Mariupol uh, with uh, so-called Green Corridor, but it's very hard. It's uh, a lot of people that, that can't uh, get out and uh, the situation in, in the city is uh, totally genocide. People don't have electricity for 10 days, don't have heat, don't have water, and uh, pro- products are, uh, go, go into the end. So I call for all Americans, I call for all European partners to give Ukraine uh, jet planes, MiG-29, and to give anti-missile system and anti-plane system. Because if uh, you're afraid of Putin, you... Uh, you you be in 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 one boat with him because uh, hundreds uh, or thousands of people dying every minute in Mariupol someone dying and we don't know the real uh, count of bodies because uh, no one can count it uh, and yeah. the problem is so 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 I I, I don't have words uh, yeah it sounds just absolutely awful Maxime Borodin thank you so much uh, for your time and for your views. Please uh, stay safe. Our thoughts are with the people of Mariupol today. While millions are fleeing, CNN met some Ukrainian women who are boarding trains in Poland in order to return back home to Ukraine to join the fight against Russia. Then we're so close to being back to pre-pandemic life, but now COVID cases are rising in Europe and elsewhere. Do we need to be concerned in the U.S.? Stay with us. Staying with our world lead, more than 3 million people have now fled war-ravaged Ukraine since the start of the Russian invasion 20 days ago, according to the United Nations, the majority of whom, more than 1.7 million, traveled to Poland. 
in their desperate search for safety. But as CNN's Ed Lavendera reports from Poland, many Ukrainians, including women who left, are now returning to support the fight against the Russian forces. The rail line from Ukraine ends at Platform 5 at the train station in Szymyszyl, Poland. After refugees walk off, this same train will go back. For weeks, it's mostly been men returning to join the Ukrainian fight against Russia. But in front of the sign reading, Train for Ukraine, women are waiting hours for a ride back into the war zone. Near the front of the line, we found Tatiana Veremchenko. She came to Poland three days ago to bring her two adult daughters to safety. Now the 40-year-old is going home to a town in eastern Ukraine near the Russian border. Ukraine is equally important for men and women, she says. We're the real Ukrainians. Women have the strength and will and the heart as well. By our count, women accounted for about half of the passengers in this line waiting to cross the border back to Ukraine. Irina Orel brought her grandchildren to Poland. She's returning now to be with her family in Odessa. How worried are you about your safety? I'm anxious, she says, but the feeling has become dull over time. I just want to be next to my family. Do you feel like this is a way of fighting for your country? Of course, she says, we have all become united during this time, each one doing what they can to help our military. Women are doing it, and men as well. Standing with several women, we met Maria Halligan. She's going to Kiev to be with her husband and family to fight, in her words, Russian terrorists. If you know what you need to do, it's impossible to feel nervous or something like this. If I have to do this, I will do it for my country, for my relatives, for my friends. And what stands out to me in this line of people going back to Ukraine is that there are so many women. Why do you think that is? I'm not men. I can't kill. I'm woman, and my work keep balance, and help, and be kind, and care about relatives, family, friends, and all we can. But now I feel that all Ukrainians, my relatives. Before she leaves, Maria shows us a heart-shaped Ukrainian flag given to her by Polish children to protect her. Those returning walk past a carriage that reads, safety above all but the train leaving Platform 5 disappears into a war zone where safety is a dream. And Jake, the reason for returning home for many of these women varied between all of the different people that we spoke to waiting in that line, but there was one theme that seemed to connect them all, that returning home, standing in that line, was a symbolic gesture of resistance, going home to stand up to face down the Russian army and Vladimir Putin. Jake? I'd love Andera in Poland for us. Thank you so much for that report. Next, we're talking to one American who went to the Polish border to help the millions of refugees exiled by war. Stay with us. In our world lead, this is what escaping war looks like right now in Ukraine, three miles away from the Polish border. Streets lined with refugees, dragging only what they can carry. In some cases, volunteer buses have arrived to ferry some of the refugees to safer ground. The United Nations says more than three million people, three million have now fled Ukraine since the start of Russia's invasion just 20 days ago. 
more than half of them have ended up in Poland. I want to bring in Seth right now. Seth is one of the many American volunteers in Poland helping some of those refugees. We're not sharing his last name to protect his safety, nor are we going to share the last names of his posse behind him, Alex and Ryan, who are federal, federal, uh, fellow medical workers, and Anna, who's a translator. But thanks to all of you for the amazing uh, work you're doing. So, Seth, you're, you're an EMT. You're a Ph.D. student. You joined a group called Volunteer for Ukraine. Was there something specific that motivated you to leave your life in the United States behind and, and offer your specific skill set uh, to help these refugees? There definitely was. So I actually, I grew up in New York. I'm no longer there, thankfully, but I was in New York when 9-11 happened. And I very much remember the very strong sense of insecurity and fear that I felt after 9-11 occurred and the nightmares that followed of not really feeling like my home was safe. And once this, this started kicking off and Russia invaded Ukraine, I felt that I couldn't in good conscience do nothing when these people, these refugees now, are living out my worst nightmare. And so I got in contact with uh, Volunteer for Ukraine and after a little bit of work and some very gracious donations from some sponsors, uh, we were able to get a team over here. And how long have you been in Poland and has there been urgent need for your background as an EMT so far? We've been in Poland for a few days now. Um, We've actually been pretty lucky that we have not had any uh, shellings or any bombings that have been close by recently. Uh, The air raid sirens did go off this morning and we basically rushed and grabbed our trauma bags and got out the door, uh, expecting that there was gonna be something unfortunate occurring, but we were very lucky and grateful that nothing did occur. Other volunteers with your group include lawyers, surgeons, truck drivers, mental health professionals. Many are volunteers, uh, are also uh, former service members uh, from the U.S. military. Is that background useful near the border? Absolutely. I think that any profession can be useful here. I mean, we, even though we're medical workers, we've been loading up buses, loading up trucks. Uh, Folco Visco, which is the non-government organization that we're working with here, is sending about five truckloads and 12 double-decker busloads of humanitarian supplies into Ukraine daily. And so even something as simple as a, excuse me, not as simple, but even something like a forklift driver, which is a very specialized skill, is extremely useful for loading and unloading these pallets of donations that we're getting. Um, Aside from money, from monetary donations, many Americans have also donated items such as body armor, medical supplies, But we also understand getting those supplies to Poland has been a challenge. What can you tell us about that? There definitely is an issue with logistics in getting supplies over here. Um, I can't speak to it as far as the transportation goes, but I can say that once the supplies hit the ground, it all has to be sorted and organized. And so if there's anyone who's thinking of sending supplies that's listening, please label them as accurately as you can. And that will help everyone on the ground to process them faster, to be able to get them out where they're needed quicker. Seth, thank you so much, and thanks to your team behind you, too. Um, You can learn more about his organization at volunteerforukraine.org, volunteerforukraine.org. Best of of luck to all of you. Coming up, she defied the Kremlin, protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine during a state TV broadcast, and now we know what happened to her. Stay with us. Back with the world lead and three journalists now killed in Ukraine, including a veteran photojournalist who worked for Fox. The network says that Pierre Zakshevsky was traveling with Fox correspondent Benjamin Hall when their vehicle came under fire. Hall 
was injured. He is currently hospitalized. Fox says Oleksandra Kovshinova was also killed. She was a Ukrainian and freelance consultant for the network. Their deaths come after American journalist Brett Renault was killed this past Sunday. Ukraine blames Russian forces for all three of these deaths. Zakshevsky was well-known and respected in the world of foreign coverage. CNN's Clarissa Ward called it a great privilege to work with him. She noted his extraordinary spirit, his tremendous talent. She called him one of the kindest, most gracious colleagues she'd ever known. Today, Germany and France offered protection for the anti-war protester who boldly interrupted a primetime broadcast on Russian state TV. Take a look. We first showed you this woman's very brave protest yesterday here on The Lead. We now know more about her. Her name is Marina Avsiyankikova. She worked as an editor for Channel One. That's a network that's tightly controlled by the Kremlin. She was arrested. Hours after her arrest, she turned up in a photo with her lawyer. And as CNN's Nick Robertson reports for us now, her quick conviction may suggest that Russia and Putin are trying to keep this arrest away from the headlines. These are editor Marina Avsennikova's last moments before arrest, bravely protesting Russia's war in Ukraine. Her banner, no war. Do not believe the propaganda. They tell you lies here. Seen live by hundreds of thousands of Russians on the state's prime propaganda channel, Russia One. In court the following day, found guilty of an administrative offence, organising an unauthorised event, fined 30,000 rubles, about $280. An apparent reference not to storming the set, but to a video she posted on social media shortly prior, calling for protests. Go to the rallies and do not be afraid. They can't arrest us all. Russia has banned all anti-war protests, but they continue. More than 900 arrested this past weekend, almost 15,000 since the war began, according to an independent human rights group. Most getting a beating, a fine and overnight detention. Unclear if the Kremlin is trying to minimize Avsennikova's extraordinary primetime protest or if she'll face stiffer charges later. Initially, state media reported investigators were considering charges under Russia's new draconian laws that prohibit what it calls disseminating false information about Russian forces and can carry a maximum 15-year jail sentence. Avsannikova, whose father is Ukrainian and mother Russian, appears to have expected to be silenced. Her pre-recorded social media post pulling no punches. What is happening now in Ukraine is a crime and Russia is the aggressor country. And the responsibility for this aggression lies on the conscience of only one person. This man is Vladimir Putin. The question for some now, is her protest an indication Putin's propaganda machine is faltering? No matter where, whether she had spent, you know, days preparing for that or hours, it definitely shows um, a change in the mood of those working uh, on Russian state to view. Too soon to say if cracks are opening up, but Russia's third top-rated state channel, NTV, just lost a long-time anchor. 
Lilia Gildiva reportedly told a Russian blogger she resigned and has left the country, saying she was afraid they wouldn't let her go. NTV has declined to comment. The continuing street protests show how many Russians remain ready to put their liberty on the line. Heartwarming for Ukrainians, but so far the number's nowhere near the tipping point for the Kremlin. Now, if the Kremlin is giving her essentially a, a lesser sentence here when they could really lock her away for a long time, and it is, if it is, uh, to sort of keep her and her anti-war protest out of the headlines, uh, she didn't get lenient treatment when she was arrested. After she came out of court there, she said she was held for 14 hours, that she wasn't given access to a lawyer and not given access uh, to her family either, which is why, you know, for so long, her lawyer had no idea where she was. Um, Anyone who gets picked up by the Russian authorities, whatever the offence at the moment, can expect, it appears, that really harsh type of treatment, Jake. And Nick, uh, in other actions uh, by the Kremlin today, uh, Russia announced that they were sanctioning a host of prominent American officials, including President Biden, uh, his son Hunter, members of his administration, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, nobody from the Trump administration or uh, family, we should note. Um, Could these sanctions have any real consequences uh, or is this mostly just symbolic, do you think? I think it's symbolic. It's been a long time coming. Uh, You know, Putin has been sanctioned. His family has been sanctioned. Uh, They always said, the Russian uh, officials always said that they would respond perhaps asymmetrically, not quite clear what they meant by that, but but definitely, you know, in a way, like for like. And I think that's what they've done here. So that that's symbolic. Um, but it does really show you the, the gap, the diplomatic gap that exists. It does make it harder to imagine a, a moment when President Biden and President Putin could get in the same room, should President uh, Biden actually want to do that. And clearly, it's not going to be in Russia, um, because that's one of those sanctions that President Biden can't go to Russia. But I, I think in terms of the impact it's going to, it's going to have, um, it may make them feel good in the Kremlin for a while, but it's not going to affect uh, the overall outcome of anything at the moment, Jake. Yeah. Nick Robertson, thanks so much for that report. I appreciate it. Are rising COVID cases in Europe and Asia cause for concern here in the United States? That's next. In our health lead today, growing concerns now over rising COVID infections in Europe. Daily cases are rising in more than half of the countries in the European Union, as well as in the UK, which is seeing a spike in hospitalizations since COVID restrictions were removed. Throughout the pandemic, Europe has been a harbinger for what's to come in the U.S. Let's discuss with CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, And and Sanjay, uh, as always, what's most concerning is Uh, hospitalizations and deaths, not necessarily the spread, but there is growing concern from medical authorities here in the U.S. about the rising numbers in Europe because it's not just cases, it's also hospitalizations. Are we seeing a possible preview of what may soon play out here in the U.S.? I think we have to pay attention, uh, Jake. I mean, every, every over the last two years, every time we've seen these sorts of trends, these cases go up in uh, Europe, specifically the UK. We have followed behind by a few weeks. I can show you, you know, just look at cases going back to uh, end of last year, end of 2020, rather. You'll see sort of how that trend line has continued. Now, the white line is Europe starting to tick up. It's nowhere near what Omicron was. It's about it's less than a third right now. But the fact that it's going up at all is of concern. 
where the orange line still low, but again, are we going to start to creep up as well? That's the concern. If you look at the UK specifically, look at the trends over there, Jake. Uh, I think this this may surprise people a little bit to, to note that just over the past uh, um, uh, week or so, you've had cases go up 48% uh, and you've had hospitalizations, as you mentioned, also go up 17%. Now you'll remember, Jake, we've talked about this so many times, typically hospitalizations do lag behind by a couple of weeks from cases. Right now, they seem to be going up somewhat simultaneously, and they're not entirely sure why. Are these more and more people who are coming into the hospital and then getting diagnosed with COVID, or how many of these people are coming in for COVID symptoms? That's data that we're still going to need. One bright spot in this, Jake, is that ICU beds, the the, the capacity for ICU beds, that really hasn't seemed to go up. So people may be coming into the hospital, getting diagnosed with COVID, either with or for, but they're not getting so severely ill as compared to previous waves. So we'll see if that changes as well. And and do we know, and maybe we don't from the information we have, but do we know uh, for those who are hospitalized, how many of them are not vaccinated or not boosted? We've not we've not seen that data yet for for this UK data. Um, you know, we, we've known from previous waves here, obviously, in the United States, it's close to nine out of 10 that are getting hospitalized are unvaccinated. My guess is that that's what remains the case. But we're going to see. And that's going to give us some insights as well into questions about boosters and need for further vaccines down the line. Right. This is all just taking a look and trying to figure out if this is something that is going to be hitting and how concerned should we be. We're not trying to be alarmist right now, bringing this information to anybody. But let's talk about the BA2 subvariant, because that now accounts for nearly a quarter of all cases in the U.S. And it's as high as 40 percent in some regions of the country, according to new CDC data. Is Mm -hmm. this something we should be concerned about? What do you make of the BA2 Omicron subvariant? You know, we've been following this closely. And, you know, one of the things that we're looking at, not only the percentage of the country uh, that are diagnosed with these, this particular variant, but how quickly you're seeing the doubling as well. And again, you can see there on the graph that it it is doubling pretty quickly, you know, every week or so uh, now. So this is increasingly becoming a larger and larger proportion of cases here. When we look at the UK data, what was interesting, Jake, is that this is this is more contagious. Omicron is far more contagious than Delta. Uh, this, appear, this subvariant appears to be more, far more contagious as well, according to some of the data, up to 80% more contagious. So you do have the situation where it's clearly more contagious. Is it going to cause as much severe illness? That's the part we don't know yet. Again, you saw hospitalizations are going up in the UK. How much of that is due to this, this BA2? And, and is it, if people do get hospitalized, are they going to get hospitalized to the point where they need ICU care? That's something that uh, is, is important to look at as well. We don't know yet. And, you know, we're not at that tipping point. Perhaps if we get to 50 percent of the cases being BA2, that's typically when you start to really get data that you can say, hey, yeah, this is the degree of illness it's causing. Here's who's primarily affected, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, and p- potentially come up with some strategies for it. Right now, again, 23 percent. Within the next week or so, if we're at 50 percent, I think it's going to be pretty clear that BA2 becomes a dominant variant. And we still don't have a vaccine for kids under five years old. A just released CDC study shows that kids under five were admitted to the ICU at record high levels during the Omicron wave, even though severe outcomes, we should point out, severe outcomes were less likely. This is the age group that still not able to be vaccinated. Maybe in May that will come, we hope. Uh, What's your reaction to these findings? Should it increase the pressure to finally get this vaccine for young kids approved? 
I, I, I really do think that that's, that's the line that, that's uh, going to be coming out of this, is that we need to get that vaccine. Let me show you this, uh, Jake. This, this graph really tells a story going back to some of the earlier variants, going into Delta, and then on the uh, far right of the screen, Omicron. Um, the, this is broken down by age group, all age groups on these lines that represent children under the age of five. Look at just what the spike has been for Omicron in terms of hospitalizations overall for some of these young children. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty stunning. In fact, what I did when I first saw this, and again, so different than Delta, so different than the previous variants in terms of the impact of this particular uh, variant on, on young children, it's higher than what we saw with H1N1, you know, a bad flu pandemic in terms of hospitalizations and kids. So we've got to pay attention to this. People keep saying kids are not as likely to get sick, and they're not. But they're far more likely to get sick with these new variants than they have been in the past. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, good to see you again. Thanks so much. CNN visits a hospital in a hard-hit Ukrainian city, forced to turn off all the lights at night to make sure that they're not targeted. That's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an arrest made in the shootings of multiple homeless men in D.C. and New York. What we're learning about the accused suspect. Plus... Drivers are seeing record gas prices, but the price spikes are so much worse for truck drivers who must use diesel fuel to move products across the United States. Will those costs be passed down to you? And breaking news leading this hour. Right now, Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, is under a mandatory curfew as more homes have been decimated by Russian shelling around Ukraine's capital. Today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky asked Canadian lawmakers to help impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, something that Zelensky will likely request for members of the U.S. Congress tomorrow morning in a speech. Today, the White House reiterated President Biden's opposition. Meanwhile, the White House has announced the president will travel to Europe next week for meetings with the key American allies who make up NATO as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues on its relentless and brutal path. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now, the Ukrainians who have stayed to defend their cities and those who choose to escape, they're all facing new terrors and enormous obstacles. This is the road down which Russia's war of annihilation may lurch. And its emptiness speaks only of what is to come from Russian-held Kherson up here to the vital port of Mykolaiv. They know what it is to be in Russia's way. Out of 18 homes, 10 are left in our village, she says. No electricity, gas, water or heat. The only ones left are those who can't leave, another adds. They're young, edgy, guns raised, unsure who we are. Press written on our vests and our press cards slowly calms them down and they apologise. But this is not an army in full control of its destiny. The trenches are where the rockets land every night. Some are from Odessa, Moscow's eventual target here. Others from just down the road. He's saying his house is just over there. It's important to see what tools Ukraine has been left with by a world that seems so concerned. 
They fight for their homes, but tell me they captured Russians who seemed unaware why they were even here. They said they can't understand what's going on. He said they can't go back because back there they're being shot for retreating. So they advance or surrender. Dust in Mykolaiv has sounded this way for weeks. But unbroken morale takes different forms. And this is a police chief driving a birthday gift to the governor with a captured Russian machine gun soldered onto it. It does not distract from the seriousness of the twilight world in which his colleagues work. Any drunk or man changing his car battery after curfew could be a Russian saboteur, they fear. There really is no way to check by looking at phones and in trunks. The city is dark, bar their lights and the flash of the distant enemy's bombs. An urgent hospital call for blood has gone out. They rush to help. The savagery of Russia's targeting measurable in how dark this four-floor hospital keeps itself at night. Invisible, not from a power cut, but to avoid Russian bombs. Mikolaev has been fearing encirclement for days. There is heartbreak for those who leave. Amid the shared agony, still a tussle to get on to buses to Moldova. The men stay. Yes, this is my wife, Senia, and my daughter, Varvara. And she goes to Poland. She goes to Poland. Because uh, uh, after combat, of course, after combat. And what will you do? I go to the... This is my country. This is my country. What I must do? Go to the Poland? No Poland. This is my home. Now, Jake, clearly Mikolaev fearing the worst is not really clear at this stage what forces Russia has to move up the road from Kherson. But there is an impact here in Odessa where local military officials have said in the last hours that shells have started landing on the coast. There are fears that the pressure on Mikolaev is essentially designed to raise tensions here in Odessa and possibly soften the ground ahead of an assault on this, the third largest city in Ukraine. Uh, But I have to say, for the people of Mikolaev, none of that detracts at all from the incessant bombardment and the damage it is doing to the daily fabric of their lives. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh reporting from Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Military experts say Russia's invasion of Ukraine appears to be stalling in at least some regards. CNN's Phil Black explores why the Russian military playbook is not working as planned in Ukraine. Russian munitions are still having a devastating impact on civilians in key cities. In Mariupol. In the capital, Kiev. But Russian forces are still making little progress, advancing across Ukrainian territory. The core U.S. assessment hasn't changed for much of the war. The Kremlin's forces remain stalled in many areas. And experts agree, almost three weeks in, Russia is in trouble. No wars go according to plan. The problem is that Russia's plan was extremely bad. The key question, why? 
I would argue it is a mix of everything. It is a failed or botched concept of operation with plenty of wrong assumptions about the very nature of the battlefield, Russia believing in a way that Ukrainians would capitulate or Ukraine would crumble. And experts believe Russia's failure to secure a quick definitive win has revealed another major flaw in its planning. Russia's out of available uh, combat forces to put into this fight. Analysts say Russia's limited forces are now divided between taking territory and laying siege to major cities, reducing their ability to do both tasks effectively. And that means Russia must be reassessing what victory looks like. At this stage, we are still talking about limited gains and goals. There's simply not enough troops um, potentially coming from Russia or elsewhere to do a sort of massive full-scale ground invasion of Ukraine. Keep that territory, hold it, and then fight a very costly counter-insurrection war. U.S. officials say they're seeing some early efforts to boost troop numbers with foreign fighters. We believe that out of Syria, there are perhaps small, small, very small uh, groups of people that may be trying to make their way uh, to Ukraine. How the next phase of the war plays out will be significantly determined by Russia's intentions in Kiev. Trying to take the capital would likely involve months of bombardment and urban warfare. That's going to be a tough order of business. Those Ukrainians know every single alley, every back room, every road, every intersection. The Russians are going to find themselves in a hard fight. Slow Russian progress can help Ukrainian forces by allowing them more time to prepare and be resupplied with advanced weapons from allies. But experts say it could also inspire greater brutality from Russia, a willingness to escalate and destroy in order to compensate for its stalled invasion. Phil Black, CNN, London. And our thanks to Phil Black for that reporting. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pleading with the Canadian parliament today for help to create a no-fly zone over Ukraine. He says 97 Ukrainian children have now been killed in Russian attacks on his country. Zelensky plans to deliver a virtual address to the U.S. Congress tomorrow. My next guest is Yulia Mendel. She's Zelensky's former spokesperson, and she's from Kherson, Ukraine, and joins us live from Lviv. Uh, Yulia, thanks so much for joining us. What's the most important message, uh, out of many, no doubt, that you think President Zelensky needs to share with U.S. lawmakers tomorrow? Thank you for having me. So I think there are three important positions. And first of all is, of course, to show the gratitude of Ukrainians to, towards American people. We really appreciate that there was this huge assistance in terms of $13.6 billion to Ukrainian army and to humanitarian aid that is very much needed today in terms of war. The second, uh, you know that the President Zelensky wants to have a no-fly zone. And he, he of course, uh, has a lot of uh, facts to show that this is very much needed today to Ukraine. But if it's not uh, possible to establish right now, then possibly he will ask to reduce the bureaucracy as much as possible to get the aircraft to Ukraine so that Ukraine can close the sky by ourselves. But also we see that there is a change of narrative, and this is a very important point today in one of the addresses. President Zelensky said that for years we have heard about the supposedly open door in NATO, but we have also heard that we cannot get in. 
happening. This is the truth and we need to recognize it. We need new formats of interaction, new determination. He was very uh, strong about showing that he is looking for new formats among uh, uh, Western leaders and Ukraine so that Ukraine can get the guarantee of security for the future and for the present to save our country right now. So I think mm -hmm. this speech will be very important and we need to follow closely the messages from President Volodymyr Zelensky. So President Zelensky received a lengthy standing ovation today from members of the Canadian Parliament. In, in fact, he's been held up as a, a war hero uh, by much of the Western world compared to Churchill, uh, <laughs> lavishly praised. And yet, we should note, no country is willing to send ground troops to help. There is not a no-fly zone over the country. Uh, the U.S. has gone back on the suggestion that maybe they could help transfer the Polish uh, MiGs, those jets, to Ukraine. What goes through your mind when you see the, the praise, the standing ovations, but nobody giving Zelensky what he's asking for? Uh, well, you're showing uh, the disappointment and frustration of Ukrainian government, but mostly about Ukrainian of Ukrainian people who see that they are being killed from above the sky, but do not see really the relief. Uh, but there is another thing that is very important to understand that the government and the whole world, civilized world, has united to go against Russia. Probably the most important thing that the world doesn't have really um, updated instruments and mechanisms to go against a, a country that uh, spreads terrorism terrorism and instability around the world and russia of course blackmails the world with nuclear weaponry this is uh, an, an important fact that we cannot avoid, avoid right now i'm sure that all diplomatic forces around the world are looking for their solution uh, to understand how to stop russia so that russia doesn't open the nuclear war because it's not only about ukraine poland also increased the army three times baltic states are understand that putin has such a disrespect disrespect to world order that uh, neither membership in NATO or no membership in the EU will stop uh, Russia going after Ukraine uh, to, to the Baltic states or for instance to Moldova that is not the member of EU or NATO. Right. So uh, the concerns are pretty huge here but I must confess that the civilized world is, fully, is hugely uh, and fully uh, united to help Ukraine and to stand against Russia and this is very much appreciated. Yulia Mandel, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Russia has bombed hospitals. Russia has bombed apartment buildings. Russia has killed innocent civilians. Ukraine says these are war crimes. And a lot of people in Syria are unfortunately all too familiar with Russian war crimes. The horrifying lessons they have for the Ukrainian people. That's next. Topping our world lead, the deputy mayor of Mariupol, Ukraine, telling CNN he's lost count of how many war crimes Russia has already committed just on the citizens in his city. He confirmed to CNN that Russian forces have captured a large local hospital and are holding doctors and patients hostage against their will. This, as he says, up to 400,000 Ukrainians remain trapped in Mariupol, most of them without access to water, power or food. Targeting civilian and holding people captive, these are, these are likely both war crimes, according to the International Criminal Court. CNN's Jomana Karadze reports that this is all hauntingly familiar to the Syrian people who know firsthand just how far Vladimir Putin is willing to go. And we want to warn you, some of the images you're about to see are quite graphic. Russia's vicious war in Ukraine has shocked the world, but no one should be surprised. 
For years, Russia's ruthlessness played out so openly for all to see in Syria, where countless civilians paid the price for Putin propping up his ally Bashar al-Assad. Syria is where Russia boasted about testing more than 300 types of weapons. It's also where it tested the world's limits. And there seemed to be none. Its war has no rules. No one is spared. And no place is safe. Russia's bombed hospitals, markets and schools. The UN called them war crimes. But no one has faced justice. Russia denies it's committed these crimes. But its cruel attacks know no bounds. Even those rushing to rescue the injured have been targeted by its infamous double-tap strikes. I lost two, uh, two of my team, my colleagues, in one second. They were, we were trying to respond to save others. Smail al-Abdullah of the White Helmet survived one of Russia's most brutal campaigns in Syria as it helped the Assad regime besiege, starve and bombard eastern Aleppo into submission. We are forced to leave the city. His beloved Aleppo was reduced to rubble. Aleppo was like doomsday. I saw buildings collapsed on their on the heads of their on the heads of the families, members of the families, children, by using the bunker buster bombs. This kind of weapon is used for the basement, military basement. That weapon was used on civilians to target the shelters for the civilians. In the little that's left of rebel-held Syria, the White Helmets are on alert. There's a fragile ceasefire here. They also want to help Ukraine. They know Russia's playbook all too well. They will bomb everything. And their, and their media will say that we targeted, we targeted a place for soldiers. We targeted Ukrainian armies. So many here feel the pain Ukrainians are going through. Pain inflicted by the same aggressor who shattered too many Syrian lives. This is my daughter Lamar. English teacher Abdel Kafi Hamdo with his baby girl by his side appealed to the world time and time again to save Aleppo in 2016. But the world looked the other way. I mean, I don't know why the world is not learning. I mean, not stopping Russia in Syria, this affecting, affected Ukraine, I, I mean, not, not stopping Putin in, in Ukraine will, will, will do the same in many other countries. It's been more than five years since Alhamdo was forced out of his home. Life is not the same, he says, but life does go on. Right now, he says, he just can't stop thinking of Ukraine. None can understand Ukrainians, none of the world, but Syrians. None can understand them more than Syrians. We will understand, we understand them more. And this is why... I cannot nowadays, I cannot teach well, I cannot do anything because I'm just following what's going on in Ukraine. In fact, what's affecting me a lot that all the world is, is repeating the same mistake. The mistake of letting Putin get away with it all. The impunity in Syria that may have emboldened him to invade Ukraine. Many here feel their fate is now tied to Ukraine. If Putin is not stopped, they fear Russia will unleash hell here again to help Assad reclaim what's left of this devastated land. Jamana Karache, CNN, Istanbul. And our thanks to Jamana Karache for her incredible reporting there. Coming up, when the price of filling up your car goes up $2 a gallon, the increase is almost double for the truck drivers who make sure you get all of your online orders. Stay with us.
And our money lead, finally, the price of oil is falling a little. While this dip might be encouraging to commuters, you should not expect to see it reflected right away at your local gas station. Today's national gas average, according to AAA, is $4.32 a gallon. It's only a penny less than yesterday. And as CNN's Ryan Young reports for us now, as gas prices agonizingly trail behind oil prices, long-haul truckers cannot afford to pump the brakes and wait. For every dollar the average American sees rising at the pump, truck drivers are seeing double. That's because they rely on diesel fuel. And we all rely on truck drivers. 70% of all the goods that moved in America move exclusively by truck. Uh, over 90% of, of what most communities need, need are only delivered by trucks. Which explains why when it comes to large trucks, Drivers are at the wheel over five times more than the average car driver and using up to more than 11,000 gallons of diesel fuel a year per driver. And that adds up. Diesel is historically more expensive than regular gasoline on a dollar-per-gallon basis, and now it's hit record highs, surging more than $2 a gallon since this time last year. Trucks are what keeps our economy going. Todd Spencer is the president and the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, which started in the wake of the 1973 oil embargo. Fuel is the single largest uh, variable expense that, that any trucker is going to incur. If you're operating the truck yourself, if you own your own truck, that's your largest single cost. For the independent truck driver, they have to absorb the higher fuel costs themselves. It's made it tight. It's, really ha it's made it very tight on us right now. Um, I don't know how we're going to make it. It's that bad. It's that bad. We have a lot of drivers, and, and I talk to a lot of them on a day-to-day -day basis. They're thinking about parking their truck because they can't afford to run it anymore. Delia Moon Meyer's family has owned Iowa 80, the world's largest truck stop, for 58 years. And she's concerned for her customers. It's fuel for their trucks and fuel for their cars. It makes a big difference to them on what they are able to eat, where they're able to stay. They're, um, you know... Their whole livelihood is based on the price of fuel. She watched in awe as truck drivers kept everything moving when the pandemic shut the country down. I think that is one thing that the pandemic and the supply chain issues has really brought to light is how important trucking is. Fuel shocks aren't anything new for Americans. And for some of these drivers, the payoff of their job is worth the pinch for now. It's like a Friday every time you get in the truck, man. I mean, it's you're self-employed, or I am anyway. Um, I get to make my own decisions. I get to see the country. I get paid to do so. So it's almost like a paid vacation no matter what I'm doing. Yeah, Jake, there's a lot of optimism out here about maybe where fuel prices are going. But look at all the trucks that are lined up out here that are getting ready to do the work that they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. But they talk about the government and the fact that they're uh, talk about the fuel tax that may be pushed off from the federal government. That doesn't help them because it's diesel fuel that they put in their trucks. They said they need help from the government right now. You think about all these trucks here, Jake. They're taking those critical goods all across the country. And you think about it. During the pandemic, they never shut down. They never stopped rolling. They say they need more help and they need more attention on the issues they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. Jake? All right, Ryan Young, thank you so much. Let's get right to our experts to discuss this. Rana Faruhar, another key inflation measure. The U.S. producer price index shows that costs in the U.S. are ballooning up 10%. Over the last 12 months, 10%. How much are oil prices driving this? 
Well, it's definitely a big part uh, of what's going on because oil goes for everything. It goes for individuals in their cars, for heating homes, but it's also part of every single part of the supply chain. Energy is crucial. Food costs are also a part of that. And some of this is, of course, coming from the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, Ukraine and Russia together make about a quarter of the world's wheat exports. Russia's the largest energy producer, producer. But even before that, Jake, costs were rising, as we know, because of the COVID-19 disruptions to the supply chain. And it's going to take uh, months more, if not years, for this to all work out of the system. And Richard Quest, the Federal Reserve is shifting its focus to fighting inflation. Officials are widely expected to um, raise interest rates uh, tomorrow for the first time in years. Uh, what might this mean for people planning on taking out a loan to buy a car, to buy a house? It's going to get more expensive. Arguably, the Fed is already behind the curve on this. They should have perhaps been raising rates sooner. Look, they will raise rates tomorrow. If they fail to do so for whatever reason, it will be an epic failure of communication to the market. They've led everybody to believe rates are going up. Now, the issue that Rana and myself and others will be looking at, we'll be looking at the statement to see how many interest rate rises will we get. To give you an example, Jake, in 2017, the last time we had a a cycle of increases, we had three rates. In 2018, we had four rates. Now, the expectation had been we could have five, six or seven this year. We're going to look to see, yes, rates are going up, but will it be four, three, five or seven? And Rana, let's switch to the to the global economy, because Europe clearly needs to, to stop its dependence on uh, Russian oil in order to effectively stop Putin's war. Um, but scaling up uh, green energy is going to take time, as will drilling for more oil in the U.S. and sending it over to Europe. Um, what's the best short term solution to to wean Europe off of Putin's oil? Well, you know, uh, there's not one silver bullet, Jake. Unfortunately, Um, Europe made a really bad bet, Germans in particular, depending on Russians for oil. Um, Right now, they're trying to pull from wherever they can. There have been some allies in Asia that have released strategic reserves. The U.S. is shipping as much as possible. But of course, the U.S. uh, sort of ramped down its shale industry, shale oil industry, in part because of the shift to cleaner technologies. Now, there's definitely talk about getting as much wind and solar and even nuclear online as possible. But I think that the U.S. and Europe have got to work together both on a short-term plan to plug this gap in the next couple of years, but also on a longer-term plan to make sure that if there is more fossil fuel used, that it doesn't derail the transition to um, to cleaner energy, which is where the jobs of the future are going to lie. Um, so I, this is something that's a very live discussion at high high policy levels right now. And Richard, all these sanctions are clearly having an effect on Russia's economy, mm-hmm. and, and there are now suggestions Russia could default on its foreign debt obligations for the first time in decades. Uh, what would the result of that be for Russia, for uh, the rest of the world? Well, for the rest of us, it'll just be a case of, well, we knew it was going to happen. Now let's start sweeping up behind. Uh, there'll be dislocation. They'll, you'll see various technical rates move because of it. But it is expected so it can be managed. Now for Russia, well, it's disastrous. 1998, last time that they defaulted on domestic debt and rescheduled international debt, took years, years to sort out the mess. Now, if you bear in mind, that was under the best conditions where we were working with them and helping them and providing IMF loans and this, that and the other. Uh, Jake, this time, 
I mean, if they default and with all the aircraft leases and with all the sanctions in place and with the worsening economy, bearing in mind the IMF thinks the US, the Russian economy could fall 15 percent. We're looking at absolute calamity for the Russian economy in the medium term. Rana Farrar, Richard Quest, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Ukraine's president set to press U.S. lawmakers tomorrow as President Biden prepares to visit Europe next week. We're going to go uh, live from the White House uh, on the latest push to help Ukraine and confront Putin. That's next. Stay with us. In the world, lead a series of new U.S. sanctions on the Kremlin and its allies, and Russia is retaliating. Today, the Biden administration sanctioned Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko. The administration also targeted a number of Russians, including a judge and 11 Russian military leaders. In response, Russia targeted President Biden himself with sanctions today, along with his son, Hunter Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, even Hillary Clinton making Russia's sanctions list. I want to bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly. Phil, the White House confirmed today that President Biden is going to travel to NATO headquarters in Brussels next week. That will be a significant show uh, for NATO of unity uh, as Russia continues its brutal invasion. Jake, it's probably the highest stake visit by U.S. president to Europe in decades, and one that, as you noted, is uh, designed to underscore what has been the focal point of the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine over the course of the last several weeks, and that is a unified Western response. All 30 NATO member country leaders are expected to attend a hastily arranged what's called extraordinary summit. President Biden will also attend a pre-scheduled meeting of the European Council, and there is some talk amongst administration officials that he may extend his visit and visit a Eastern European country, perhaps to meet with refugees as well, though that is not locked in yet. The big question right now, given the unity, whether it's on sanctions, whether it's on uh, diplomatic intent, is there anything they can agree to to announce that would go forward or further? That is the question. We've obviously seen the pressure from Capitol Hill, pressure from some members of NATO as well to do more for Ukraine. At this point in time, the unity is the most important element when you talk to administration officials about the response. Whether or not they can agree on something is something that's still being debated between European and U.S. officials now, Jake. And Phil, after the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, addresses Congress uh, tomorrow virtually, uh, President Biden's going to speak. and We're going, likely going to hear him address some of the requests Zelensky is expected to make, uh, ones that there is little appetite for in the United States, including uh, enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Yeah, Jake, whether implicit or explicit, when the president speaks tomorrow, it will be in response to when President Zelensky addresses members of Congress tomorrow morning. Look, it, you only have to think back a couple of weeks to last time President Zelensky spoke to lawmakers in a Zoom on a Saturday morning, making the request for fighter planes, making the request for a no-fly zone, and really drawing a very emotional response from those lawmakers that ramped up the pressure on the administration. And the White House will attempt to address that. There has been no movement forward on those fighter planes, but they will outline assistance just today, the Secretary of State announcing an additional $186 million in humanitarian aid. The president will talk about $13.6 billion more headed towards Ukraine on humanitarian uh, and lethal assistance. That will be the focus of the president tomorrow, Jake. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's dive into this with our panel. Uh, let's welcome uh, Bakari Sellers and S.E. Cup. So here's what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say today about the objective of President Biden's trip. Take a listen. 
his goal is to meet in person, face to face, with his European counterparts and talk about and assess where we are at this point in the conflict, uh, in uh, the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, we've been incredibly aligned uh, to date. That doesn't happen by accident. The President's a big believer in face to face diplomacy, so it's an opportunity to do exactly that. S.E., uh, President Biden, he's been having these same conversations virtually uh, for weeks now. Uh, what do you make of him now heading to Brussels to speak with other NATO leaders? Is it really about um, the face-to-face conversations or is it more about the, the symbol, the image going to Br- Brussels, standing with NATO? I think it's the latter. Look, it is important to meet face-to-face with people you and I know through the pandemic. It's you know hard to do what we do virtually. But I think there is some symbolism. There's only so far that he wants to go in terms of helping NATO and Ukraine. Um, And so this is something he can do to say, I'm not disinterested. I stand with you. Uh, I want to show you that, uh, even though I'm not going to give President Zelensky everything he's been asking for. And I know that's disappointing. I am here for NATO. I am here for Ukraine. Bakari, the White House today would not confirm if President Biden might also go to other NATO countries. Um, perhaps uh, the one that the people are talking about the most is Poland, because obviously Russian strikes on Ukraine uh, came within 12 or 13 miles of the Polish border. And all those refugees, uh, I think more than half of them that have fled Ukraine have gone to Poland. How significant would it be uh, if he went to Poland? Should he go to Poland? Huge. And, and should he go? Yes. I mean, I, I think that the show of strength and unity that this administration has portrayed has has unified the globe around President Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainians, and actually um, helped push back against Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, Secretary Blinken, um, you have Kamala Harris, you have the President of the United States now going um, to show that strength. Jake Sullivan, just in his one-on-one meeting with China, uh, you have this administration taking those steps with a unified NATO also showing strength, and that's. I think that is going the extra mile. Now, I will say this. I think that there are many members of uh, the United States Congress. There are a lot of us here at home. I I think it's both Democrat and Republicans who say that we should give them every resource we possibly can. Um, And the red line is, you know, the no fly zone. But airplanes, resources, military weapons, whatever we can do to arm the Ukrainians, we should do. And I think that the president's going to hear that loud and clear whether or not he does it. I'm not sure but he definitely should at least try to do everything in his power. Tomorrow, Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, is going to address Congress um, via video. Today, he received a standing ovation after speaking virtually with Canada's parliament. Um, We do expect Zelensky will reiterate his call for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. The White House pushed back again on this idea, saying defending uh, this would push U.S. service members into conflict with Russia, and who knows how much that would escalate. I mean, Essie, to put it starkly, what the U.S. is basically saying is the risk of nuclear confrontation, if the U.S. were to get involved in enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, uh, is so stark that we are willing to watch. This is what this is my interpretation of what the administration and NATO are yeah. saying. We're we're willing to watch tens of thousands of Ukrainians die because we do not want to risk millions of people around the globe dying. I mean, am I putting it too starkly, do you think? No, 
when it's worse. Tens of thousands would be awful, but that would be on the low end. If you look at what Putin and Bashar al-Assad have done in Syria, and I want to thank you for highlighting that in a previous segment. Today marks a grim anniversary. It's the 11th year that that war has been raging. And, um, you know, upwards of 500,000 have died, 50,000 of them children there. And Assad and Putin are still still waging war against um, Assyrian citizens. So it's much the, the potential for the catastrophe to balloon and get much, much worse is, of course, there. And I think that Zelensky knows how to use not only social media and traditional media, but the political bodies around the world, like U.S. Congress. He knows that if he speaks to these atrocities, both the humanitarian uh, atrocities, but also the economic factors, the refugee crises, all the things that it will be impossible to look away, as so many did in Syria. Believe me, Syria looms large for people in the region and people who've been watching. And I think Zelensky knows that if the world moves on from Ukraine the way it did um, in Syria, then, then Ukraine is lost, it's gone. But I will remind people, there seems to be a little paralysis when it comes to Putin and these nuclear threats. Um, we've killed hundreds of Russians in Syria. Hundreds and bragged about it. Yeah, and it did not. But Russia, they were Russian. I, I should know they were, they they were they were Russian mercenaries, though not Russian soldiers. And I guess to Putin there is uh, a, a difference. Uh, Bakari, I just want to give you one last chance to 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 weigh in because something um, when Hillary Clinton was put on this Russian sanctions list, even though she's completely out of government, out of power, hasn't been in power uh, in in years and years. Uh, she retweeted the article about it and wrote, I want to thank the Russian Academy for this Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was a witty answer that belonged on Twitter. We could actually use her in government right now. Oh, oh what a difference that would be. But let me also just say really quickly, Jake, I think you were, you were too stark in your description thereof. I think su- supplying them with, mi- with MiGs, supplying them with o- other defense mechanisms, arming the Ukrainians is something that we should do to the tilt and I think we can do that without actually enforcing a no-fly zone. And it's more nuanced than the starkness that UNSCF believe it to be. I was just saying that that's an interpretation of somebody else's position, not my position. Uh, B- Bakari, I appreciate you as always. SC, great to see you. Thanks to both of you. A multi-city manhunt comes to an end at a gas station in Washington, D.C. And now we're learning more about the alleged gunman behind the shootings of five men who are experiencing homelessness. Stay with us. International lead, you're watching the end of a manhunt for the suspect in brazen, cruel attacks on people experiencing homelessness in Washington, D.C. and New York City. The suspect was arrested at a D.C. gas station early this morning. Over the span of nine days, beginning on March 3rd, police say that the shooter injured at least three men and killed two, most of them while they were sleeping. And now some relief for those terrified by the attacks. Today... I am here to announce we've got our man. CNN's Shimon Prokopas joins us now live. And Shimon, how did police track him down and what's he being charged with? Ultimately, Jake, it was tips, tips that the police received after they released photos of this individual, photos and video that then led them to identify him as 30-year-old Gerard Brevard. That's how they found them. They said, based off of these key tips, from people who called them in. They were able to conduct surveillance. They were able to know which locations uh, they thought he might be at. And so that's how they found him 
this morning at 2.30 outside his gas station uh, in southeast D.C. Now, he's facing several charges in Washington, D.C., including first-degree murder, assault with intent to kill, and assault with a deadly weapon. He's also potentially facing charges here in New York City for those two other shootings, one of them uh, where he uh, shot, brutally just shot, a sleeping man here out on the streets of Manhattan. The DA's office here has yet to charge him with in connection with those two shootings, but they say that is going to happen at some point. The NYPD is still working through some of that evidence, and they hope to be able to charge him soon here, Jake. And Shimon, there was a $70,000 reward for uh, tips uh, related to leading to the shooter. Uh, is somebody going to get that money? Oh, yeah. The police chief there in uh, Washington, D.C. said that they are going to give that money to the people who called in those tips. They say those tips were key. The fact that they were able to come up with this money to pay this $70,000, someone is going to get that money, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopis, thank you so much. Coming up. Grab your tissues. Why pollen counts are about to spike 250%. An allergy season is expected to start one month earlier. Stay with us. Finally, from us in our Healthy Today, scientists often complain that the public doesn't truly appreciate the urgency of the need to combat climate change because the impacts are, are long-term. They happen over a long period of time. But a new study shows that the effects are actually right under your nose, or to be more specific, right in your nose. Researchers say climate change will cause future allergy seasons to be far more intense, spiking pollen counts by as much as 250%, causing the season for sneezing to start more than a month earlier, meaning even more misery for people who have allergies or asthma or other health problems. Scientists say warmer temperatures due to the increasing amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are the main factor. So Get your tissues ready now. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. The whole two hours sitting right there for you to enjoy. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 